Welcome back to the Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read a page of the Wise Man's Fear every day and then we talk about it. This is page 463, chapter 69, Such Madness. I made several trips to Severin Low to gather materials for Alvarin's gram. Raw gold, nickel and iron, coal and etching acids. I acquired the money for these purchases by selling off various pieces of equipment from Codicus Workshop. I could have asked the mayor for money, but I'd rather he thought of me as independently resourceful rather than an ongoing financial drain. Quite by coincidence, in the course of this buying and selling, I visited many of the places Denna and I had spent time together. I'd grown so accustomed to finding her that now I caught glimpses of her when she wasn't there. Every day my hopeful heart rose at the sight of her turning a corner, stepping into a cobbler's, raising her hand to wave from across a courtyard. But it was never truly her, and I returned to the mayor's estate each evening more desolate than the day before. Making things worse was the fact that Brayden had left Severin several days ago to visit some nearby relatives. I didn't realize how much I'd come to depend on him until he was gone. As I've already said, a gram is not particularly difficult to make if you have the proper equipment, a schema, and an alar like a braid of Ramston steel. The metalworking tools in Codicus Tower were serviceable, though nowhere near as nice as those in the fishery. The schema was no difficulty either, as I have a good memory for such things. While I was working on the mayor's gram, I started a second one to replace the one I'd lost. Unfortunately, given the relatively crude nature of the equipment I was working with, I didn't have time to finish it properly. I finished the mayor's gram three days after talking to the mayor, six days after Denna's sudden disappearance. The following day, I abandoned my end of the page. My name's Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I have no... I've abandoned my project! I've abandoned my project! I'll I've abandon you if you don't let me finish my note. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> don't bully him, Jordana. You guys tease me all the time. I'm allowed to fight back every now and again. <laughs> I'm finished. Very well. So, a note sort of from yesterday, but also from today. He asked for eight days initially, and then ended up with three. Yeah, it was a negotiation. He really did not negotiate that well. <laughs> How far would you push your luck with the most powerful man in Vince? Fine. Reasonable. I just thought it was worth noting. Whatever. It is worth noting. But, you know, he, well. he, he, he takes what he can get. And clearly he, you know, he really just wants to stall, right? He just wants to stall to let Denna come back. He doesn't really need eight days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ghost Den is kind of an interesting happenstance. Yeah, I was going to suggest that maybe he was actually seeing Denna, but it seems pretty cut and dry that um, he's just hoping to see her and she's not there. Also, Jordana, one of the reasons he might have begged for eight days initially is because he wanted enough time to make himself one also. Mm, fair. He, he wasn't able to. Because I believe he doesn't end up with one. Uh, no, I can't doesn't. recall, but I, I, I believe he ends up not replacing it. Well, I think it's important just... for the story that he not have a gram. And I think that because he makes the mayor one, Rothfuss needs to give an excuse as to why he didn't make himself one. So he has to point out that he didn't make himself one and that there's a reason why. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that is very apt. Because otherwise we'd all be like, well, he made the mayor gram. Why didn't he make one for himself? I think it's very convenient that he can remember the schema. I, if I were 
perhaps compelled to think about sources for crackpot theories, one might be that he's misremembered the schema and botches it somehow, which would be interesting. But it's also well established that one of Quoth's many talents is he has a very prodigious memory, right? Like once, you know, it's, it's even implied that he has like a, anyway, he has a prodigious memory. It's implied, it's pretty much said in stone that like once he learns something, he doesn't forget it. True. Although surely Quoth would blame himself if the mayor died of a sympathetic attack while wearing a gram that was botched that Quoth made. So much so that he might consider himself a king killer if the mayor was the king at that point. That seems awfully far-fetched to me. It does seem far-fetched. I like the option, but I agree that it's it's a bit much. We talked about earlier that uh, it's probably not a coincidence that Denna and Brayden are both out of town at the same time. And it's on this page that we learn in on in the text that Brayden has left Severin and he left several days ago around the time when Denna also disappeared. Yes. Very suspicious. Mm-hmm. It is, it is pretty sus. Also, I yes. think we would be remiss in not pointing out that this is, in fact, the nicest chapter in this book. Why is it the nicest? Ah! Ah! <laughs> Damn you, Jeremy! Why is I, was it ready the nicest? To, I was ready to scold you. I was ready to, to nip, to just bite your little fingertips off if you dared to say something when I said the name, the title, the number of the chapter, and you snuck one in on me. I thought for sure we were clear. <laughs> Jordana, what is the number of this chapter? None of your goddamn business. <laughs> uh, I also really enjoy Quoth's humble brag when he says, uh, he's like, as I've already said, a gram's not hard to make as long as you have the schema, the proper equipment, and an LR like a blade of Ramston steel. So as long as you are a fucking whiz-bang sympathist, it's no problem. Well, it bears mentioning that Ramston steel is hard but brittle. Uh, whenever Quoth describes his alar as Ramston steel, I think we're meant to think of it as braggadocio, but it's also been stated explicitly that Ramston steel is the best knife you'll have until it breaks, which reinforces the idea that his alar will be broken at some point. Sure does. I don't think your alar needs to be, um, to have longevity the way that Ramston steel does not. I don't think that your alar needs to have that in order to be good for making a gram though. So I think it makes sense in this context. Yeah, that's true. Although, you know, if Quoth set up some sort of long running binding, perhaps to protect someone from a sympathetic attack, if they had a botched gram and his alar did break, that would certainly be a, uh, a situation where Quoth might blame himself. Yes. Very well. We have a rather lengthy letter today. Then mailbag it is. This is from The Devil and Daniel, who writes on page 166, Holly and Garrick. Hi, pagers. I hope this email finds you keeping safe and well and that you're enjoying the warm Toronto weather. We are. Thank you. I'm in the process of catching up on the many episodes available through SoundCloud, not Spotify, and so am woefully behind while also keeping current with your new releases. As such, I apologize if this has been covered in one of the many episodes in between. I don't believe it has. In episode slash page 166, Holly and Garrick, you discuss the Nalt fallacy, that is, jumping to conclusions based on false expectations, and a fan's theory that we, the readers, have a tendency to commit this fallacy throughout the books. The example he provides is when Quoth sees the Chandrian after his troop is murdered, and we, the readers, accept as truth the fact that the Chandrian are responsible for killing Quoth's parents and troop. The fan goes on to say, 
He doesn't believe the Chandrian killed Quoth's troop, or at the very least, that we cannot accept this as canon. After some lively discussion, Jeremy said it would gall him if true, and, quote, it'll make me really angry if the book series I've been reading for like 15 years turns into one big gotcha. While I don't actually believe this theory and certainly hope it's not true, I did have an interesting thought and wanted to provide a what-if for you to noodle on. In the Wiseman Sphere, Quoth plays a joke on the audience in which he makes Tin Tatatornin look exceptionally simple and easy, and then plays the hell out of Bellwether, making it seem like an incredibly complex and difficult song. In fact, the opposite of each is actually true. Quoth's friends discuss the joke after the performance and explain it as a joke of two audiences, those who know and those who don't. What if Rothfuss is actually playing the same joke of two audiences on us, the readers, that Quoth played on the audience at the Eolian? The readers that have been primed to recognize the Nalt fallacy and suspend disbelief or expect the opposite will be rewarded, and those who don't recognize the subtle hints and simply believe whatever they're told will end up having the rug pulled out from under them. If true, this would certainly make the Kingkiller Chronicle one of a kind. However, I hope this isn't the case and we get a slightly more traditional ending. As always, I look forward to your thoughts. Keep up the great work. Best regards, the Devil and Daniel. P.S. In an earlier episode, you struggle to think of an anti-Chekhov's gun example where something is introduced and it doesn't pay off in a later scene or act. I would say this is the basis of the entire TV show Lost, a show that I still harbor a grudge towards some 10 plus years later. Would love to get your take on that dumpster fire, even if you wrongly disagree. Uh, well, I'm going to jump in and say that J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, has many flaws as a creative and perhaps his biggest and most notorious is that he cannot stick a landing to save his life and has never ever ended anything in a satisfactory fashion. Uh, I, I think that an argument can be made that his feature films are tend to be stronger in this regard, but his TV series are notorious for having God awful endings and lost is a prime example of like everything that's wrong with him as like a writer and creative person, because they just threw a ton of ideas up in the air and had no plan for what was going to be the result of anything. And as a consequence, it's just hot garbage the entire time. Uh, fuck that show. Also, he ruined star Wars. He, he did make the worst star Wars movie, which, you know, is not a thing that I've ever thought is not a trophy that I ever thought would be taken away from George Lucas, but there you have it. Uh, I, I feel like when you're a writer who is deliberately playing with your audience's expectations, you have to walk a tightrope between surprising the audience in a way that they will find enjoyable and making them angry and making them like check out of whatever you're, you're creating and like losing them because you've lost their goodwill. Uh, and we've talked before on this podcast of the example of um, from dusk Star till Wars. dawn, which uh, is, I like, it's a thing that I love, but that I also have witnessed directly, like make people really, really mad because it completely, uh, it, it does not fulfill the promise of the premise that it sets up. Initially, it goes off in a totally different direction and I think this is in some sense, like this is not a hard and fast rule because every audience is going to react to a piece of work differently. And there's kind of no way at a certain point to predict how people are going to react to a thing. But I do think that if you're going to string the audience along, that they are watching some one kind of story and then change it up on them 
at some point down the line and surprise them. So, Jeremy, I strongly disagree with your assertion that what Rothfuss is pl- building up to is a rug pull or that no, it's being I, changed what, up what, somewhere what, down what, the line. What? I, don't put words in my mouth. I never said he's doing that. I said I'll be mad if he is. Yeah, but of course he is, but no. he's not because it's all being telegraphed. There's right. a ton of clues. Right, but... but like, the whole but, book is but, about no, expectation. But, what? No, 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 no. It's there's one thing to like have a revelation or a reveal that I am expecting that I encourage. But if that revelation is like everything you've been reading up until this point is bullshit and a lie, then I will be mad. But it won't be bullshit and a lie because all of the facts will have been there. You just won't have recognized them as facts until it was too late. No, 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 no. It depends what the reveal is. Yeah, and the reveal is that the Chandrian are good, the Amir are bad, Quoth's in a time loop, and Denna is the moon. If that is the reveal, then it then those are all bad ideas, and if those turn out to be true, that will be dumb. <laughs> Jeremy, it's all telegraphed. It's all there. No, That's why we're doing not. this podcast. No, like, no, it's not. I, I'm sorry. Like, Quoth's in a time loop. Whatever. I want to read it all night long. The point that I'm driving at is... You can, the, the, the longer you wait to pull a big twist on the audience and the more dramatic that twist is, the more it upsets the premise that the audience has been buying into this whole time, the less likely I think you are to be successful. That is my personal feeling. And certainly I deeply hate it whenever any piece of fiction I am invested in suddenly tells me that I was stupid to be invested in it. Okay, I don't think I'm going to be convincing you, but I think that the difference is in the amount of trust that's put in an audience. I think people get mad at From Dusk Till Dawn because there's no way you can possibly predict what's coming. But a good twist, one that isn't just like, oh, it was all a dream, which is rude and people hate that correctly. A good twist is one where the clues are there and if you've been watching it with that eye, but like, you don't want to actually have predicted it. You want to go, oh, at the fu- at the right moment and have your entire perception shift with the movie so that you realize all along what you've been thinking was not wrong, but just with a lens that was like a different lens. Like it, I agree, Jeremy, that if there is a complete change in what the book is about and that the things that you have been taking as fact are uh, not actually fact. That's not a twist. That's just like a cruel prank. But if you've been reading a book that is about the nature of truth in stories and about how uh, you can't expect to have all the information and that making decisions based on limited information is a tragic flaw of the hero and that the nature of heroism is a uh, matter of perspective then when the twist does happen, you really don't get to be mad because that's what the whole book has been about all along. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But if this book tries to, but if the message of the book at the end of the day is like, Quoth was actually bad the whole time and you were stupid to have liked him or trusted him, then I'll be mad. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be the message because we still like and trust him. Right. Like, even if he ends up doing evil accidentally, we're still going to be sympathetic to him and we're still going to understand why he did it. And that's going to be the tension of the book. But I don't I also don't think that, like, the message of the book is Quoth was the villain all along, although he is in a time loop. 
my point is, and I think we actually agree on this point, is that the more your twist or the more you decide to upset your audience's expectations, the harder you have to work to retain their trust after you've done that. And I agree. And I would also say that the harder you have to work ahead of time so that it's fair. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I know we've gone long. I want to talk a little bit about detective fiction and the idea of fair play in detective fiction and what separates like a fair mystery from an unfair mystery. We don't have to dig too far into it because I know that we've, I, Jeremy and I have uh, monopolized a lot of the podcast here, but this is a, the idea of fair play in mystery writing is uh, an idea as old as the genre. And you get a lot of meta commentary at the time when detective fiction was extremely popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s about like what constitutes fair play? What kind of information are you allowed to uh, withhold from the audience uh, and how much, um, how much needs to be telegraphed. And so, you know, you, I think there's a similar analysis to be done. I don't think this is the podcast for it, but I think there's a similar analysis to be done in like what makes a fair twist in contemporary storytelling. Uh, are we, are we to discuss that right now? N- no, I, I oh, okay. think we're, I, 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 I move that we move on. This yes. has been a good episode. I'm very pleased. Jordana, do you have anything else you'd like no, to I'm include? Good, Jeremy, anything else you'd like to say? Nope. Okay, I have one final thought, and it's that close in a time loop. I want a time loop all night long. That's the end. Like, that's where we cut. Yeah. Okay.